Good morning, Joy Church. Come on, what a great time to be in the presence of the Lord today, together. Hey, since we didn't have church last week, due to the ice and storm and all of that, did anybody else notice that? Was that just at our house, or was that anybody else? Uh, I think we got to be double into today, right? Like, recapture what didn't happen last week and really bring it today. So I'd like to see bright, young, eager faces this morning as the word, as we're sharing the word and the message, just be leaning in and listening. And if you could just give me like an amen, pastor. Come on. And I, w- I was in a Pentecostal church down in Texas last month. And uh, man, I heard a lot of well, well. Come on, somebody. Anybody got a well? Come on. Bring it. Well, man, I'm so excited to be here with you guys today. We had a, a, a sad time not being together last Sunday. And uh, we only lost internet for a couple days. But it, it, it re- made me realize how connected I am to my modern conveniences. How many of you need a touch from heaven on your life because of what you had to give up this last week? You know, internet or power. How many of you still don't have power? Anybody else in here? Okay, come on. Help them, Jesus. Bless them. Give them somebody with like a four-wheel drive and that likes to cut firewood to help them do what they do. I am not any help to anybody in a crisis. If you know that there's inclement weather and you need like a manly man to help you survive, I can write you a song. Did you know it's cold outside? The ice is falling from the sky. No power or internet for you. That's all I can bring to the table. So you need somebody like Jody. Where's Jody? He's in here. I don't know. He's helping somebody probably. He's cutting down a tree or something. He was here. You're there. Yeah, that's the guy right there. Yeah. Sorry, Jody. I just made you the church's emergency response team captain. He already was that by sheer virtue of how awesome he is. Okay. Well, We're jumping in today, continuing in our series about uh, making space for God. And the series is called Minimal. You know, in our culture, we talk about these things. We we use these buzzwords, you know, let's be minimalistic, essentialism, let's make space, let's make room. But what you fill, the space that you create with, is really what is the pertinent thing. And when we talk about making space in our lives, yes, it's going to give us focus, it's going to give us more energy, it's going to help us in the natural things, uh, but it's, it's making space for God's purposes and plans to come and take root in us. Uh, The scripture is very clear. There are two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of this world and there's the kingdom of heaven. It's the kingdom that Jesus inaugurated and speaks about when he's on planet earth 2,000 years ago. And there's always a a war inside of us for these two kingdoms, which one is going to take over. And so you can become better at making space in your life. You can become better at being more focused and, and kind of, you know, unloading your plate of work and activity and all of that. But if you fill it with selfishness and self, self-centeredness, you're still living for that other kingdom, even though you're just a little bit more efficient or effective. What we want to do is say, God, I want to make space in my life for you to come in and fill me up and lead me and guide me, fulfill me, but use me for your purposes in your kingdom. Amen? Amen. So uh, my daughter, Evie, she's on the front row here. She's the, the light of my life. I love my, my daughter. She's awesome. And her middle name is Joy. And so when the church was new, we were doing these ads and we'd say, Joy's not just our name, it's also our culture. And so she would come out in her little cuteness and she would go, because her middle name is Joy, she would say, my name's Evie Joy and Joy's not just my name, it's also my culture. (laughs) And uh, it was so cool. And Joy is her culture because she's a joyful person. She brings so much joy into everybody that knows her, especially mom and I. But... When she was a little tyke, a little tiny girl, she loved to tie things. Anybody else have kids that love to tie things up? You do you? Do you? Yeah. yeah. It's like, I don't know, it's like every generation there's somebody, a great tire. So Evie would tie everything together. She would tie traps. There'd be like 
cords tied, you know, like a TV cords and stuff would get tied. She'd tie like teddy bears, things around, you know, tied together, tie animals together, tie other kids together, neighborhood kids that people, parents didn't like that. But she, she would tie her clothes together. And you know how hard it is to get kids ready normally. So one day we, we go to Evie's room and she has tied all of her clothing to the bunk bed. Uh, and so all the clothing is tied to the bunk bed and we're like, oh my gosh. And so I said, Evie, uh, untie this. And her reply in her cute little girl voice was, Daddy, I'm really good at tying things, but I'm not very good at untying them. <laughs> and I just laughed and laughed. I wasn't mad at all. I was a patient, loving father as always. But I thought about that for this message that we're really good at tying things, but it's difficult to get untied sometimes. I think in life, we're, we're really good at loading our plate we're really good at you know, tying ourselves up in worry, anxiety, fear, cares, pursuits of life, different things that we're doing. And then we find ourselves in this place where what we need is tied, tied up. And this is where, the, where Jesus steps into this space of confusion and overwhelm and burdened, burdened living and worry and anxiety, all tied in knots and all of this. And he says these words, Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, Jesus said, come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. It's interesting because we live in an affluent, very like technologically advanced society, time and history, and everything is relatively easy for us compared to our ancestors and forebears. Um, but that is sort of irrelevant because if your soul is heavy burdened, then you feel that and that is your experience. This is one of those things where, you know, I don't think it's very helpful for us to criticize the experience that someone has of their soul because you might say, well, man, you could have it much worse and you could have to go cut trees down to have a cabin built in the, but you get to live in this apartment or whatever. But if somebody's soul is wearied and burdened rather than, than coming at them, what we need to say is let's, let's solve this issue. Okay. Let's deal with this. And Jesus is speaking to these people that he's speaking to and to us down through history. And he says, come to me, those that are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I'm humble and gentle at heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. Now, to set some context here, Jesus is speaking to an audience primarily of Jewish people that are fishermen, farmers, you know, usually the, the, the down and outers in this kind of thing. And a few of the religious leaders and rulers are hearing Jesus, usually to try to capture him or get him to say something that gets him in trouble. But Jesus is actually referencing in this passage that they have, they're under the burdens of religion. So these, these Jewish people have had Pharisaic Judaism. They've taken not only the laws of God out of the Pentateuch and the Torah, but they've now added like actually barriers around these laws. So not just don't do the thing God said not to do, but we've actually created even a more difficult way to do this so that we can make sure we don't trespass into God's area. Now, it's a good intention, but the end result is that they live in this incredibly legalistic, very heavy burden of religion. And so Jesus is actually using the language that they would understand. You see, at this time in history, a rabbi used this term yoke. So if you were to take on the teaching or you were to become a follower of a particular teacher, they called it their yoke. And the picture is like of an oxen where one oxen is on the left and the other one's on the right. And so what the teacher's saying is we're going to do something. We're going to carry something together, but you're going to wear it and, and I'm going to wear it with you. And, and this yoke that I give you, if you were to follow my teaching is what Jesus is saying, it's going to lighten your burden. You're going to carry a yoke. You're going you're gonna to connect to something and you're going to live for something. You're going to engage in purpose and work and effort. But when you do it with me, it's going to feel easy and light upon your soul. 
And this is in a religious sense, but it's also in a holistic sense because when we follow Jesus and we give him our lives, we leave, we actually give up the right to worry and strive and effort for our own salvation and for our own safety and all of these things. And we're called to live in a place of trust. We're called to say, if I'm following Jesus, then he and I are living this thing together. He's, he's, he's with me as we move this way. And Jesus uses this term, rest. Now we have to do a little bit of translation because living in 2024, we have a very modern view of what rest means. And it typically means this thing you do in between the things that actually matter. In other words, for us, rest is often like something we have to do only to recharge and refuel and get better at the things that actually matter, our actual activities and efforts and labor. Or we see it as taking a vacation or hobbies or those types of things. But this is not actually the full sense of rest that Jesus is promising. What he's promising here, what he's speaking of is holistic rest. It's like at the very core of who you are and everything about you, you can say, I'm good. Like, this is, this is, this is good. See, every one of us in life is carrying burdens. Maybe you're here today and you have burdens in your family. Maybe you're here today and it's, it's work stuff or it's mental issues, mental health. Maybe it's societal pressures or anxieties about what's going to happen in the world around you. And this is what creates weariness. Weariness is more than being physically tired. Physical tiredness, you can fix that with getting your sleep properly done and get some exercise, maybe eat some celery rather than only just purely buffalo wings. You know, there's some different things that you can do and, and you can actually not be physically tired. But oftentimes, even people that aren't necessarily physically tired feel tired and there's a sense of pervasive weariness because in this broken and fallen world, we're carrying a load that we're not meant to carry. And that's what creates this weariness. And this is the thing that Jesus wants to solve. Listen, you're going to see in the Bible, oftentimes what we tend to look at as a Band-Aid is actually like full-out heart surgery, what Jesus is talking about. The scope of the rest that he promises is not, let me take that you had a bad day this week and I'm going to give you like a nice, you know, motivational thought that's going to make you feel marginally better so you can make it to tomorrow. That's not the kind of rest Jesus wants to do. He wants to get your soul safe and at rest in him, okay? This is holistic. It's not a Band-Aid. It's like heart surgery. It's going at a much deeper level. This is a beautiful promise. Jesus kind of echoes this in John 14 when he says, I'm leaving you with a gift, peace of mind and heart. And the peace I give is a gift the world cannot give. So don't be troubled or afraid. And here's something I want to be really clear about. Do you know why I'm so passionate and excited about being at church on Sunday not like twice a month or twice a year, but every Sunday. The reason why is because this is the only place on planet Earth where God's people come together, and it's not because of the color of our skin or our economics or politics or whatever, but gathered together, we are the body of Christ, and the presence, the tangible presence of Jesus is here, and this gift flows in this place and with these people and in this community that we are, okay? This gift, gift of peace, this gift of rest, and it's a gift the world cannot give. If you think that the world has this kind of peace and this kind of rest and this hope and all the things that come from the king of the kingdom and the church, his body, if you think you can get it from the world, Jesus flatly tells us the world cannot give this to you. 
You can find the very best therapist. Praise God for therapists. You can find the best doctor. Praise God for doctors. You can find the best coach. You can find the best life coach. You can find the best whatever it is that you think that you need or want. But you're not going to find this kind of rest in any other place in the world. Only It only comes from Jesus. But Christians, let's d- dig even a little bit deeper, okay? We came to church with a shovel, not just a spade today. Come on, we're going to dig deep, okay? So w- when we talk about this, we got to understand that we like to also, as Christians, use this really sort of cheap thing because we'll just say, oh, it's Jesus. The world cannot give you this peace. Where do you get it? Oh, Jesus. Well, what the heck does that mean? Because how do you access Jesus? Because let me tell you how I access Jesus. I have to use my physical body to actually lift my physical hands to worship him so that my body tells my soul, this is how you should act and think and and feel in this moment. So whether I felt like it today... Like I came into this place. Well, how do I access Jesus? I actually actually have to sit and pray the prayers. I have to open up that Bible and actually begin to read it and engage it. I actually have to show up at church and be part of this community and serve and learn and grow together. So when we, when we say that Jesus gives us this kind of rest and Jesus gives us this kind of hope, we have to also understand that means connect to it in the ways that the scripture tells us to connect to it. You got to be part of God's body, part of the church. Amen connecting in in life, not just some abstract philosophical nod to it by saying, oh, it's just Jesus. No. How do I access this rest? Okay. So Jesus, interestingly here, when he uses this term burden, he says, my burden is easy and light. What he's, what he's talking about here is the fact that his rest does not take you off of the game board of living your life in a purposeful and active manner. Because that would be to invalidate what we were done, what, what God did when he created us. It says, that he created us and he puts Adam and Eve in the garden and he says, be fruitful and multiply, tend and keep the garden. No matter what you do, you're called to be a gardener. If you're a plumber, then your, your gardening is when you do plumbing and how you serve your, your clients and the way that you do your work and how you show up for your family and all these kinds of things. If you're a pastor, it's that. If you're a, if you're a, a candlestick maker, I don't know, am I doing a Christmas song right now? What am I doing? I'm just telling you, if you get in front of a couple hundred people, your brain just starts to do weird things, you know? That's actually not true. My brain does weird things even when I'm alone. (laughs) (laughs) Ephesians chapter 2 says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So when Jesus says, I'm going to give you rest, it doesn't mean he's going to take you out of action. He's going to make it so when you are living your life in the way that he's called you to, you're living out your created order that your soul, you're going to be at rest while being productive, while being effective, while making a difference in the world around you. Okay, let me share three thoughts today with you about rest. Number one is this. Rest reminds us that we are not self-sufficient. Rest is taking a step back and saying, I'm not God. I can't hold the world on my shoulders. Like, I am, I am not number one. I'm number two. See, our culture has really given us this ideology that I'll just kind of rope together and call it this, is self-sufficiency. Self-sufficiency means, like, I can, I can get better at everything that I'm working on. I can become that great father. I can become that great mother. I can become that great spouse. I can become that great employee. I just need to keep buying classes and keep improving myself and working on myself and also serving myself, taking time to rest and being in balance and all of these types of things. But see, here's the deal. Self-sufficiency gives place to this lie that you and I are the ultimate thing, that we're somehow able to manifest or self-actualize our destiny 
and even our personal joy and fulfillment, but it's a lie. And here's why. Because it's a category error. And here's what I mean by that. We are not ultimate beings. We are derivative beings. We derive our fulfillment and our joy in and through our relationships with God and other people. Let me put it simple. We think oftentimes that we're number one, but we're not. We're number two. God will always be number one. This is why so many people are miserable. Because they're, they're trying to be number one. I show up and I decide, I get to decide what gender I am. I'm number one. No, you're not. Maybe you feel a certain way, and I'm not even trying to be mean or anything. I'm not making any kind of statements that hurt anybody's feelings. It's just a manifestation of this self-actualization type thing in our culture that exists, okay? God is saying, no, I, I created you as the gender that you are. It isn't your decision. You're derivative. You're number two. You will always be miserable trying to go to a place that you don't belong. If you're a fish, swim. If you're a bird, fly, right? But, you, but here's what we, what we get miserable with is like we go, no, but I'm going to fly and swim. No, because you're not number one. You see, number one sets some laws and orders and some boundaries on, on the whole entire created order. And so you are going to find your greatest joy being the best two that you can be, yeah. not one. And what does it mean to be two? It means to say God's truth is the truth that I judge myself with, not, not my truth judging his truth. Oh, but I didn't like this verse where you said that I have to be faithful to this one person that I'm married to because my preferences would be to do something else. Well, you're going to be miserable if you try to be number one. You've got to be number two, okay? But this, you go, Pastor Jake, I thought we we're talking about rest. We are. We're just taking the scenic route. We'll get there. <laughs> we are derivative beings. And here's at bottom level, the thing is that God wants to give you the best life and experience of this life that you're actually living that, he, that you can possibly have but only when you're number two because he's never going to give you his throne. He's never going to, but I want him to. Good luck with that. He won't. He won't give it to me. I ask for it constantly. I'm like, well, my worry and anxiety wants to rule, be on the throne. And God's like, nah, I'm in control. But I wish this person wouldn't have got elected. Mm, yeah, it wasn't up to you. Well, I have a vote. You get one. Does it count? I mean, does it work? I don't know. You know what I mean? Do you see it get counted? I mean, we don't know, right? Like, we have a bunch of illusions of control, but at the end of the day, could you control what the weather did this week? Because I wanted to be number one and be like, my power is going to work and my internet. And, you know, and I was like mad at Xfinity. I was old man shakes fist at sky this week, you know, about my internet. Okay, let me move on. St. Augustine said this, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. You're going to be restless until you find your place where your soul actually locks in and you say, I'm going I'm to embrace my place in the created order in, in, my, uh, in every part of me. And rest is an admission of this. Listen, rest admits. When I step back and I rest and I go, okay, I'm not, I'm not striving, I'm not efforting, I'm just resting. It admits that my value, my self-worth is tied to my identity as God's child, not my ability to produce or control or influence. I'm valuable because I belong to him, right? My self-worth comes out of that. And so real rest is actually a beautiful act of worship. It, it only happens in a place, in a posture of humility where we say, I'm not God. And I embrace trust that God's got this. And so rest reminds us 
Our need for rest and rest itself reminds us, I'm not number one, I'm number two. I'm not in control. He's in control. I can step back and let God be God, and I'll do my part to be me, to be his image bearer, to be his son. All right, number two thought about rest. Rest frames or surrounds our activities with purpose and meaning. This is one of those areas where we have to be careful with our terms because as moderns, we tend to look at this word rest Again, as the absence of something. So we have the mountaintop of my activity, and then it flows down to the valleys of my rest, and nothing's happening here. This is a nothing. This is a zero. This is an absence. And then I go back into being productive, and I go back into being that good husband and father, and that good mother, you know, sister, spouse, whatever. I I go back into these things that I do, and my identity's up on these mountaintops. But But the scripture actually gives us a much more well-rounded picture of rest, that it's not the absence of something, but rather something in and of itself that has worth and value. And rest is not just idleness or laziness, it is intentional inactivity. In the same way that patience is waiting on purpose. Waiting doesn't make you patient. Some people are waiting because they are not in control, but they're impatient. A patient person says, I choose to wait even if I'm forced to. I choose to wait at a place of peace. This is how rest is. Rest is intentional inactivity. And this is an important concept to understand. When you go back to creation, the creation story in Genesis in Genesis 2, it says, On the seventh day, God had finished his work of creation, so he rested from all his work. Now, do you think God was tired? Did he need a break? Anybody? You're like, you're being scary today, Jake. You're asking us direct questions, and you're <laughs> demanding we answer. This is like growing up in the Schmelzer house, huh, Evie? You get random questions thrown at you from mom and dad. He's <laughs> peppered at you, you know. Was God tired? No. Did he, need, did he need, like, was he hangry? No. He, he wasn't exhausted. He wasn't, he wasn't, he didn't pour himself out. He's doing something on purpose. He rested from his work. And listen here in verse 3, it says, And God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy because it was the day when he rested from all his work of creation. Let's say, let me, let me t- say it this way. God cannot make something holy that doesn't exist. He can't bless a nothing. He can only bless and make holy a something. Rest is not the absence of something. It is something in and of itself. And here's what rest is. Rest is when God stepped back from his work of creation and he didn't just say, okay, well, I did the thing on the first, second, third, fourth, fifth, and sixth day, and the seventh day, we just keep doing it, and then the eighth day, and the ninth day, and the tenth day, because I'm God, and I could just go forever and never stop. The problem is when we don't stop and rest and look back like God did, we actually don't enjoy the things that we did on one, two, three, four, five, and six days. And so God was saying, I'm going to show you a pattern of what we're to be like, what you're to be like as my image bears, that I can't make something that's a nothing holy. I have to make a something holy. And this something is rest. And this something is where we step back like God did and say, it is good. It is good. It is good. It is good. It is good, it is good. And that seventh day is where I reflect back on what I have done. And so when we imitate God, our Father, who stepped back and said, it is good, he said, I've done something good and now I'm going to enjoy it. We begin to step into what we're created for, which is to live a life of joy. Romans 14, 17 says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of what we eat or drink, but of living a life of goodness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. You guys, we're called Joy Church. We better have joy here. If your faith and, and your, your, your Christianity, your life with God is not generating joy in you, something is off. 
if the Holy Spirit gives you the ability to speak in heavenly language, which is awesome, praise God, but you're a jerk and you're miserable, there's something wrong because the Spirit of God is joyful. Come on. This morning I grabbed some old Hosanna 90s worship uh, and I was blaring it on my phone and I had it (laughs) playing up the stairs and the, the, the agonized screams of my children as they were being awakened was so much joy, you know? My joy was not full in them, but they, they got to enjoy it. And then I did some dance moves, you know, right? In the kitchen. Anyways, we didn't build the playground out here just to have an awesome playground for kids to play in. It is one of the most eloquent treatises of theology that you will find at Joy Church. You're going, what? That playground is to demonstrate that in God's house, it is it's more joy in his house than outside of these walls. That this is a place where weary and burdened people can come and play and be at rest and rejoice and even act silly because their love and their identity is in Christ, not in all this stuff in the world that's trying to pile on everybody. Rest frames our activity with purpose and meaning. How we actually see what goes in the six containers is only beautiful because of the seventh one where we stop and we frame it and we look and we say, my rest gives me space to observe what has been good and what is done. It's interesting because as humans, context often tells us whether something is valuable or not. There's a story that uh, I remember where there was this violinist and he was a world-class concert violinist. He was going to play like Carnegie Hall or the New York Met Opera, whatever he was in New York, some prestigious place. And this man, this incredible violinist, he goes down to the subway on the day when his concert is, and he's playing his violin for free in the subway, and there's a video, and people are just walking by, you know? And I'm sure probably got 10 cents, or somebody gave him five bucks. And those same people were going to go pay a few thousand dollars to hear the same guy play the same songs that night in a different context. If that doesn't talk about human, na- human nature and how we see value and worth... I don't know what does. You see, in the subway context, their mind just said, this must not be valuable, even though the notes are the same and the quality and the player is the same, because that, that wouldn't be here in this place. But when I see it in its proper light, now think about life. If you don't stop and rest, you're not going to see things in their proper light. You're missing the context. We were created to work, to tend and keep the garden, however that plays out in your own life. And then we're also commanded to rest. God illustrates this and demonstrates in his rest, which is where we step back and we enjoy the fruit of that labor, we enjoy God, and we enjoy our relationships with others. Let me give you another illustration. My wife's a fantastic cook, and uh, sometimes she makes our family recipe of spaghetti and meatballs, and it's got Italian sausage, and it's this sauce that cooks all day. It's called long sauce. It's really, really good. This is going to be really tough for the people in the next service to deal with this analogy if we use it, but... uh, she makes this wonderful spaghetti, and it takes you know, hours and hours and hours to prepare this in the morning and get that sauce going. And uh, if we were to sit down as a family at the table you know, at 6 o'clock for dinner, and Bethany brings out this wonderful meal, and she gets the Parmesan cheese out, and we got the sauce, and it's steaming, and the pot opens up, and the pasta just come out of the boiling water, and it's ready to go. How are you feeling? You doing good? Doing good? We just came off a church fast last week, so hopefully you're doing good. Uh, do you know what wouldn't be appropriate? If we were like, oh, Bethany, you've just worked so hard on this, it wouldn't be worth it. I mean, we, we wouldn't dare enjoy it. So we're just going to take your, your effort and we're going to put it in the garbage. And we're going to go make a sandwich. Or we're going to go, how many of you that are chefs would not 
enjoy that <laughs> very much. Here's the reality. Our enjoyment honors her effort. My enjoyment of what Jesus did for me at the cross honors the sacrifice. A guilty conscience doesn't help Jesus feel better about what he did at the cross. It says literally that Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. When do we give him joy? In our joy. When I am enjoying God, when I am enjoying the work of Christ, when I am enjoying, not just emotionally, but even positionally, enjoying the status I have as a child of God, that I can step back and rest. I honor his effort. I honor his creation. I appropriately frame what he did. You see, the enemy will always try to give you God's gifts in a poison packet because he'll try to get you to steal or take or earn that which God wants to give you for free. It says that the thief's purpose is to steal and to kill and destroy. The devil can't create, he can only pervert. He can't create, he can only poison. He can only mess up or twist or bend what God has done that is good. And God wants you to enjoy life. He wants you to enjoy the life that he's given you to live according to his purposes and plans for you, living as an image bearer. The thief comes in and says, you should steal this thing that God wants to give you or you should take it or you should cheat it or whatever. Jesus says, my purpose is to give a rich and satisfying life. We actually bring glory to God when we live a life of enjoying him and enjoying his creation and enjoying other people. And rest is the space that frames this in so we can enjoy what we've done throughout the week in our service for God and our purpose for God. We can enjoy the work that God has done and we can enjoy even the work that we've done. Yes and amen. Rest frames our activity with purpose and meaning. Last, not least, rest is a gift we receive from God alone. Like many of God's beautiful gifts, if we lose sight of the giver of the gift, the gift can actually actually become a false idol. It can become a stand-in or a rival to the God that actually gives it. And so God gave us rest. He gives us this ability to step back, take a deep breath, and say, hey, God's got this. Like, I'm not number one, I'm number two. Therefore, the weight of the world's not on me. I'm not Atlas holding the weight of the world. I'm able to just let God be God, and I step back and rest and enjoy who he's made me to be and what he's called me to do and the people around me and enjoy him. But what happens is our culture gives us a counterfeit to this. Beware counterfeit rest because the rest that the world offers, here's how you will know its language, okay? Listen, my, my child, be wise, right? When, when the rest that is offered to you by the world is self-centered, self-serving about you and enthrones you, you can guarantee it's poison and it's not coming from the Father. It is not the Father's rest. You see, our culture has done things like taking good things like you know, self-care and hobbies and different things. And it says, well, you now, instead of using it because it's good and you can enjoy it, here's a little word that you can know when it's going to be from hell. You deserve it. You deserve it. You've been so faithful. You've worked yourself so hard. You've spent that time in prayer. You've read your Bible. You deserve, you deserve a break today. You know what we deserve? We deserve eternity without Christ. That's what we deserve. There's a great song by... Newsboys, when we get what we don't deserve, it's a real good thing. When we get what we don't deserve. It's singing about grace and receiving what God has for us. But you deserve it. You need to put yourself first. If you don't love yourself, how can you love other people? Did you know there's a problem with these words? They're not true. 
They're unbiblical. They're anti-biblical. Because the scripture tells us, take up your cross. Die to yourself. Jesus says, if you live, he that seeks to save his life will lose it, but he that gives up his life for my sake will find it again. The path to resurrection life and real rest is not to put yourself first. It's to put yourself second and let God move you. Now you go, are you saying we should never take a break or take a day to have a nice spa day or whatever? Absolutely not. I'm just saying be careful of what's happening in your mind when you talk about these things. Don't let counterfeit rest come in because ultimately it will leave you more tired than you were before. Hobbies, self-care, these are great things, but they're not the deep, meaningful, restorative work that provides the real holistic uh, care that God gives us. It, the world says that this object or this thing, this vacation, this uh, hobby, this, this, if you just got that better uh, guitar or you just got this better car or whatever, that's what's going to bring you contentment. No, those things are fine and good, but in and of themselves, they do not deliver that which God wants to give us. And so oftentimes what these things are are simply escape mechanisms. They are things that we do to numb ourselves from the pain that we feel, from the weariness that we feel because we are living in a fallen and broken world. And the reality is we need, to, we need to say, God, I have tied this soul up. I have burdened this soul down and I am weary. And I'm not going, stupidity that got us into this mess is not the same stupidity that's going to get us out. I need to surrender and rest in you and receive true rest from you so that it's not, it's not me putting myself first or taking care of myself. This idea that you are to be the one that takes care of yourself is unbiblical, it is the person sitting next to you's job to take care of you and yours to take care of them. It's not Bethany's job to get everything that she needs out of life and marriage. It's my job to serve and love her, and it's her job to serve and love me. This is what happens when we embrace the biblical way of life amongst one another, and it's radical because our culture says, you take care of yourself first, and out of your overflow of how good you're doing, you can help other people. The problem is we're all empty, how many of you feel like, like me, I'm going to be honest, I don't have the emotional bandwidth to carry most people's burdens. I can't even carry mine. No amount of self-care has fixed me. I have cared for myself very well for a very long time. Okay? So what do we, what do we say here? Obviously, you have to hear what I'm saying with a grain of salt. I'm not saying you don't take a day off. I'm not saying you don't take a spa day. Hear me out. I'm saying that at the core of your living, being, eating, drinking, moving, what you do in life, it has to be his kingdom first. He's one, I'm two. And I trust that I will be taken care of by this good, good father. Come on. I, I trust that he'll meet the needs of my soul. And you know what happens when you trust in God to meet your needs? He exceeds your needs. Never has he forsaken me. Never has he forsaken the righteous. Never has he let me down. Never has he failed me. Come on. That's why all of our old, really great hymns of the church are about the faithfulness of God. So many of them. Because when you put him first and you become second, he actually elevates you. Come on, the scripture says if you exalt yourself, you will be humble. But if you humble yourself, you'll be exalted. Pastor Jake, I thought we're talking about rest. We are. We are. We're talking about the fact that our real rest is in surrender and submission to him. God's rest comes in and just does such a beautiful work in us. It's restorative. It's rejuvenating. It recovers strength. It leaves us better than we started. His rest leaves us looking more like Jesus, more freed from the weight of sin, more full of the Spirit, peace in place of fear, freedom 
in the place of oppression, forgiveness in the place of bitterness, restores joy and hope in places of discouragement. True rest relieves us of identities used to shame and accuse and discourage, and rather we leave encouraged by our true identity in Christ. Last, I just want to, this quote by David Guzik, he said, this rest is in a person. It's not just an idea, it's in the person of Jesus Christ. More than doctrine and ideas, if you meet a troubled crying child and try to comfort them and give them rest, using ideas and logic, it won't do much good. But when mom comes, the child is happy again. Ultimately, we find our rest, the rest for our souls, this holistic rest that we're talking about, in Jesus. I love this, these words, when Jesus is on the cross, and he's crying for a drink, and they give him this sour wine. You know, they're just messing with him, and he drinks it off the sponge or whatever. It says in John 19.30, when Jesus had tasted it, he said, it is finished. And then he bowed his head and released his spirit. Starting from this place of salvation, Jesus finished the work. What does our effort add to it? If Jesus said, this is done, now, you, now it's time for you to rest, does your guilt and shame and striving add anything to that work? Or is it like throwing Bethany's spaghetti sauce in the, in, the, in the garbage? Sit down at the table, get yourself a big plate of spaghetti, put on a bib and have some fun. Embrace the joy and the rest and the goodness of God in your life because he said it is finished. Now here's the beautiful thing, the work. Because being a Christian isn't about just taking a break for, until you die. There is work in the kingdom. Come on, there's a city we need to preach the gospel to. There's disciples that need to be made. There's poor that need to be elevated from poverty. Come on, there's missionaries that need to be funded. There's new churches to build. There's places to go. There's people to see. Come on, there's work of the kingdom of God. There's work that God's doing in us. How many of you feel like you're totally sanctified and Jesus has nothing more to work in your character? Not me, right? But listen, the work of our sanctification is done by the Holy Spirit. And as we follow him, he makes us both holy and happy. He teaches us how to live and our souls rest in him. The thing that we all want when we lay our heads down at night on the pillow and what our soul cries out for is only found in a relationship with Jesus. He says it so many different ways. He says, I'm the bread of life. Come on and get a bite. I'm the water of life. Come on and take a drink. I'm the doorway to life. Come on, open the door and come in. I am the path, the road to life. Come on, get on the path. This is the invitation today. And maybe you're a Christian. You've been a Christian a long time, but I want to invite you to be a Christian at rest not a Christian who's restless and chasing after all these kinds of things or even trying to earn your way to God. Come to a place of rest. Man, I'm, I'm, I'm at rest in him. Maybe you're here today and you don't have a relationship with Jesus. I want to invite you right now to make that decision to become his follower. Would we just all bow our heads and close our eyes this morning? If you're here today and you say, Pastor Jake, I am a soul that needs a savior. I am somebody that needs to give my life to Jesus Christ. He invites you to drink. He invites you to take a taste. Come on, he invites you to become his follower, to take his yoke upon your life. You're saying no to the kingdom of this world and yes to the kingdom of God. You're saying no to your, your, your selfishness and agenda and you being the leader and you're saying yes to him. If that's you this morning and you say, I want to join God's family, I want to become a follower of Jesus, would you just raise your hand and I'm going to pray with you today. Just raise it up, I'm not going to embarrass you or call you out. Anybody in this place, just lift it up. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thank you so much. Awesome, awesome. Thank you. We're going to pray this prayer together. Repeat after me. Dear Jesus, I receive you as my Lord and Savior. Thank you for the work of the cross that you finished on my behalf. Thank you for saving me and making me right with God. 
I put my faith and trust in you and in you alone. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's celebrate that today.